The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Ziptility, the only app utility crews need to find, fix, and manage infrastructure assets from the field. And by Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. This is session 177. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. And as always, I hope this finds you safe and healthy amidst the COVID-19 public health crisis we find ourselves in. Today we continue a streak of awesome guests. We welcome AWWA's Chris Moody to the podcast. Chris is an engineer with the AWWA and is helping lead AWWA's efforts on PFAS. Uh, Chris is a fantastic guest and he takes this complicated PFAS subject and breaks it down into comprehensible units, as well as giving us the latest on the regulatory status of PFAS and a potential rulemaking on it. Uh, we also have Reese Tisdale uh, in this episode with a Bluefield on Tap segment. So before we get to the great interview with Chris and, and Reese, uh, a first, a, a little housekeeping, and we start off with a hearty thank you again to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, and Intera. And I'd like for you to do me a big favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. As long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. That'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. Now it's time for this month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale, who updates us on some macroeconomic activity affecting the water sector. Take it away. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefield on Tap segment. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. It's uh, in Boston. Cold, breezy. You'd think winter was coming. Yeah. You, did you survive the uh, presidential debate? Yeah, absolutely. I went to bed at night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, we, we, let's stay away from the politics. Um, what, uh, what's on your mind these days? What, uh, what's Bluefield uh, seen out in the market? So I think the big thing for us. So we've got seemingly a lot going on, but one of the things we did for clients just recently um, because of COVID, because of recession, we've been updating our market forecast, both on the CapEx side, OpEx, municipal and industrial. So we just put together a, a webcast or a presentation for our clients to talk about sort of bright spots in the industry, uh, particularly among, among amongst or amidst all this uncertainty. Yeah. What uh, what's that market forecast look like? Dare I ask? Um, it's no longer uh, it's no longer a haircut. It's more of a buzz cut uh, for capital. <laughs> so brace uh, yourselves. But over the next five years, we're looking at about a twenty one percent decline, uh, which is 
pretty ugly. Now, what's even scarier, this is when I fell out of my chair talking to our team, was when I was looking at the 2024 numbers, it was 44% of where it was, we thought it was going to be in a, in a sort of optimistic case scenario. So things are not looking good. Um, the rest of the world, that's, that's the U.S. that I'm talking about. The rest of the world fares a little bit better. It's 17, 18% declines over that same time period, five years. So a little bit better. Um, a lot of it has to do with just, like I said, uncertainty in what's happening. Industrials have taken a hit. 22, 23%, but they'll rebound more quickly. That's, I think, the upside of all of this, or one aspect, is particularly certain uh, industrial verticals are going to rebound. Uh, once people start eating again, eating out, yeah. <laughs> we'll see more uh, spend in that area. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious what's driving yeah, the forecast for a 21% decline in CapEx. So the way we look at it is, and I think we may have talked about this past, we look at past recessions, how has the market responded? And for the municipal water sector, there's always a lag. It usually takes 18 to 24 months for that to happen. But we also look at um, everything from, you know, housing starts, you know, so where's the new build, whether it be pipe networks, capacity. Uh, we look at regulatory drivers. Uh, where the regulatory uh, environments are stronger, where's, what's happening, population growth, uh, which obviously impacts housing starts. And then I think in this case, we've sort of had to adapt a little bit on the fly, and that is looking at which states have quarantined. And it, obviously, when you see states like New York and California, which are huge, they're huge capital spend markets. When they go down, and New York is maybe the best example, it shuts completely down, then the sector as a whole is just going to get crushed. Revenues decline. Um, you know, the state funding is not going to be there. Municipal funding taxes aren't going to be there. So there's going to have to be a scramble for money. So that has a heavier weight or pull down downward on the uh, on the overall forecast. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you you mentioned certainty. Uh, is is the certainty going to clear up once the election? Uh, is over in the U.S. or I mean, what what feeds into that uncertainty? Well, I think it's a matter. Maybe the biggest uncertainty is whether things are split between presidential and Senate. Right? I, the assumption is that the Congress will remain with the Democrats. And if I haven't said this, I just got off a call a little while ago with utility organization that talking about, well, stimulus this, stimulus that. We're still in emergency management phase. I don't think we've got to the, how do we get shovels in the ground with funding from the government? And post-election, the thinking is, look, if it's still split, what I would say, White House and Senate, are we still going to be in sort of, you know, um, things are going to be still locked down because there's going to be disagreement about how to spend money, where, when and where to spend money. If the Democrats take it, I think it ha seems to happen every time the floodgates open and there's at least one party that's in, in control of, you know, Congress, House Representatives, Senate and White House, they're going to spend more money. There's no doubt about it. And the, the question is how much of that will go to water, wastewater infrastructure. A lot of it always goes to things like transportation or Army Corps of Engineers type projects. You know, the, traditionally it's going towards state revolving funds. So will it get a big bump? And I guess the bigger question is, will it be a 
will it actually be a bump or will it be just a sort of pulling dollars forward that were otherwise going to be deferred? That's a question that's still looming out there. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, turning back to the private sector, uh, what, what's the impact you think on, you know, if, if CapEx is going down, are, are folks going to be out looking for deals to acquire or, you know, what's, what's your sense of that? So I think that if you are a private water player, and I'd say that more broadly, whether it be an IOU looking for acquisitions or even just a services company, um, you know, a contract operations company, I would be pretty optimistic right now because I think municipalities and utilities are looking at their balance sheets right now saying, and really their cash flows, saying, what are we going to do? Um, where last year, two years ago, they may have been more resistant to offloading any assets. This may be an opportunity to recover some value uh, for the city and its stakeholders because, you know, not only are they broke or going broke, the assets are getting older by the day, and there are definitely a lot of interested players out there. So we've seen a slight uptick already. I think I was just looking at the number the other day. It still takes, I mean, and you would know as well as I, it takes 200, 250 days to just get a deal done. So it takes a while for these things to pass. So the deals we're seeing now have been in play probably for a while. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens next next year, next 12 months. Yeah, you're right. You can't just snap your fingers and, and make it done. There are procurement protocols and, and you know, uh, asset disposition protocols that governments have to go through. So uh, very good, very good perspective. So, Reese, uh, as always, you've been terrific. Thank you so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you next time. All right, Dave. It's always fun. Take yep. it easy. You too. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research. Uh, and Reese Tisdale, its president. Uh, now it's time to head on to our feature interview with Chris Moody of the American Waterworks Association. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Chris, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on. How are you doing today? Doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, thanks. Um, uh, we're going to talk about PFAS today. Could you, um, uh, to, to kind of give us some background on PFOS and you know what your where you sit in the industry. Could you could you tell us a little about how uh, you, you know what your background is and how you got interested in water? Sure. Uh, well, so I I'm an environmental engineer by training, but uh, I've worked for consultants for a few years doing different things related to solid waste, um, odor control, and drinking water and wastewater and. Uh, I've been with AWWA for a little over a, a year now, and um, you know, my, one of the topics that I've been blessed on is, is PFAS. So I, I help manage a portfolio of regulatory issues for drinking water, um, and one of my major ones is, is PFAS, so per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. Okay, terrific. So uh, I, I, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of PFAS, and uh, I think it would be helpful to kind of uh, provide a little uh, background on what PFOS is, and then we can kind of take it from there. Sure. Uh, so PFAS is a, it's an acronym for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. I won't get into the details on the chemical structures, but if you think about it, it's, you know, an organic chemical that has a carbon fluorine bond. So it's very strong resistant to de degradation. Uh, it's heat resistant, oil resistant, 
And a lot of these properties that we end up uh, taking advantage of when we make products with PFAS. So, um, you know, the class is pretty broad. It's, it's thousands of chemicals. Uh, it was discovered on accident in the 1930s uh, by a chemist. And the first, uh, you know, most common PFAS that was used uh, early on was Teflon. So we're all fairly familiar with that. And, uh, you know, one of the early uses of it was coatings for valves on the Manhattan Project. But now we see it used in a lot of uh, different variety of products. So nonstick coatings, stain-resistant clothing, um, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, another good example is the military and other airports will use it for AFFF, which is aqueous film-forming foam. So because of those thermal and degradation properties it has, it's, it's a very good product to be used for presenting, um, stopping a fire. So, Right. So, so um, I think what you're saying, right, is that PFAS has a lot of very good qualities and it, it, we, we really need it for our economy. But the issue, uh, as we're going to talk about, is, is really what it means for drinking water and qual- you know, water quality, things of that nature. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the, the big topic uh, for today is, you know, we, we have used it for over half a century for different things, but, um, you know, we, we have found a lot of cases of pretty high levels of contamination in drinking water. So the first, you know, big case that everyone knows about with PFAS is Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, you know, that was an example where they've been manufacturing PFOA for you know, various decades uh, in a facility, and it had actually managed to get into the drinking water supply in the nearby communities and ended up being a, a pretty big uh, case uh, for the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you, in, in trying to deal with uh, PFAS in, in drinking water, you know, what's the, I, I think it would be helpful to, to, for you to give us just a quick background on the regulatory regime that, you know, in terms of how drinking water is regulated, because there's an interplay between state and federal. And I think, I think just framing that up is going to provide a lot of, uh, a lot of context here. So could you, could you frame that up for us, please? Sure. Uh, so drinking water is at the national level. It's, it's regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, typically what happens is it goes through a process with them under the Safe Drinking Water Act, and they establish a, a drinking water standard if it's a public health risk. And states, in some cases, are able to set their own standards. So they're not allowed to be less strict than the, the national standard. But if the state decides that they need to have a more protective standard, they can push forward with that. And that's something that we've, we've seen a little bit of an inversion on lately is, um, you know, while the EPA has still been considering standards for PFAS at the drinking water level, um, there's been a lot of states that have blazed forward to do their own thing. Um, I think at the point we're doing this right now, uh, we're about 25 plus states have either a drinking water standard or other source protection standards. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the state action and what what's going on at the various states. So can you kind of summarize what kind of activity we're seeing at the state level? Sure. Um, so there's, there's a, a handful of states uh, like New Jersey, New York, and Michigan uh, that have Establish drinking water standards for PFAS. So that means that the finished drinking water quality needs to be under a certain concentration for PFAS. Uh, in terms of which PFAS specifically have been regulated, it, it kind of varies based on the state and the approach 
We've also seen a fair bit of states that have targeted the source protection standards. So that's the groundwater cleanup level, a source water protection level, water quality criteria, different efforts that you can do at the state level to, you know, make sure we get cleanup and we mitigate contamination. There's also been a fair bit of states that have done restrictions on how you can use PFAS products. So in some instances, it might be a ban on food containers that are coated with PFAS or articles of clothing that are coated, as well as one of the most common restrictions is limiting how you can discharge aqueous film filming form for testing. So if you're not using it for an emergency purpose, how you need to manage that. Okay, terrific. So, and is there any significance about the geographical, you know, dispersion of the states that are regular? I mean, are they all in the north? I mean, you mentioned New Jersey, New York, Michigan, those are all northern states. Is there, are there any trends we can see in the, amongst the states that have, have adopted PFAS, you know, regulatory regimes? You know, it kind of varies. New England has definitely been fairly, you know, if you look at maybe the New England states and some of the Midwestern states, there's been a little bit more action. Michigan has been a really popular one because they had a good amount of protections during some drinking water monitoring a few years ago. But we, you know, we see it in California. Oregon has activities going on. So it's pretty dispersed. It just depends on the state and where they're willing to put resources at. Yeah. And, and, I think it would be also helpful. PFAS, how, how is it, where's it manufactured? I mean, is it, is it, is the, the problem areas or the hotspots limited to where it was manufactured or is it manufactured everywhere? I mean, how, how present is this? I mean, is it, uh, how ubiquitous is, is the presence of PFAS? That's a, that's a pretty tough question. Uh, you know, I would say that if you look historically, you know, you do have a lot of manufacturing that's occurred in the northeast area of the country. North Carolina is another common hotspot. There's a facility, there's been a few facilities down there that have manufactured it. But, you know, if you start to look at the context for the levels of concern we're talking about and the parts per trillion, so the common comparison is, you know, drops on the level of drops of PFAS in a, you know, Olympic-sized swimming pool, you know, it starts to depart away from only the areas that are manufacturing PFAS and also facilities that are utilizing it. So, you know, we know that there's a lot of other potential sources of PFAS to the environment. One example is, you know, chrome plating facilities are commonly noted as a potential source facility. But we also have, you know, all of these different products that are coated in PFAS, which get disposed of in landfills. And then, you know, the landfill leachate can actually contain PFAS. And there's, you know, various literature that you can find that actually cite pretty high levels of PFAS coming from landfill leachate. It's pretty tough to narrow down to a certain facility at this point. Well, that's no problem. You've given us a pretty good perspective on how widespread an issue it is. And we've talked about the um the state action what what about the fed at the federal level what's the epa up to yeah so you know in probably the early late 2000s uh the epa had done some um 
you know, kind of pressuring manufacturers, the primary manufacturers of uh, PFOA and PFAS, which were the long chain, um, you know, kind of the, the legacy contaminants. Um, they pressured them into doing some voluntary phase outs so that those weren't being manufactured as much anymore. Uh, in the more recent history, we've seen the PFAS action plan was published about a year and a half ago, so February 2019. And this was really the agency's roadmap moving forward for how they want to address PFAS. So it includes a multi-barrier set of approaches. So it, it tries to put and bundle everything together in terms of you know trying to get air emission standards, drinking water standards, making sure that we we um, we get progress on uh, contaminated site cleanups, as well as pushing forward the research that we need to actually um, promulgate all these standards and these regulations. So there's been a fair bit of that recently. Um, one of the most noteworthy regulatory actions we've seen this year is the regulatory determination for perfluoro-octanoic acid and perfluoro-octane sulfonic acid, so PFO and PFOS, those two legacy compounds. And uh, that was a fairly recent proposal, and that's a pretty major step for the agency to take. It represents the first step for developing a drinking water standard. Yeah, I want to get into the regulatory determination, but something you said kind of uh, piqued my interest about um, air regulation is is because we've been talking about it from a drinking water perspective, but is it also uh, ambient in the air? So for the for the air emissions, it's it's a fairly priority research topic that's ongoing. Um, you know, we're not really entirely sure what happens to the PFAS when it gets incinerated. So. You know, we do have facilities that incinerate PFAS waste, and it's something the agency is working on at the moment. So we, we could potentially see one down the road. You know, we may, we may not. It just depends on where the research goes with incineration, um, you know, efficiency. Yeah. And and as we kind of talked about, that's a little off top. We're, we're here to talk about drinking water quality, and that's kind of what your focus is rather than the than the air. So we I, I appreciate the, the background you provided for us. Um, let's get into, into that regulatory regulatory determination that the EPA uh, made. So, wh- what's the significance of the EPA even making the regulatory determination? So, under Safe Drinking Water Act authorities, um, the the regulatory determination is really the first big step the agency takes towards regulating a contaminant in drinking water. There's a few other steps that come before it that are more on the data collection and research side. But once they've made a regulatory determination, it's them initiating a really in-depth, thorough analysis of the science in order to understand what impact a regulatory standard would have on public health. And so it's a way to identify meaningful opportunity for public health risk reduction. Um, But, you know, one comment to make to the last one is, you know, we, we do focus a lot on drinking water, but, you know, part of what makes PFAS such a, uh, I'll kindly say it as an, an interesting topic for us is that it's a really, I mean, we talked earlier about the PFAS action plan being a multi-barrier approach and it's a really critical approach to take because, you know, setting a regulatory standard for drinking water is, is really critical to protecting public health. But, you know, we have other mechanisms that come before that that are much more effective at preventing contamination in the first place. And so, you know, if, if we do see the air emissions are playing a significant role and PFAS contamination of the environment. It's something that we track pretty heavily because it, it's a source protection standard essentially for us from our perspective. Right, right. Um, so 
Uh, how, what kind of runway does the EPA have with this regulatory determination? I mean, how long does it take to compile all that science and, and distill everything down to kind of what, how it ought, things ought to be regulated? So they did a preliminary uh, proposal uh, in March. We're expecting that they'll have a final sometime around January 2021, so in a few months here. Uh, once they get that done, that kind of starts about a three-year clock. Um, it might vary here and there a little bit, but we would expect that within the next three years after that final, um, we would start to see a proposal and then maybe a year after that, a final. And once they have a final uh, primary drinking water standard that's been established, uh, that starts a three-year clock for compliance uh, for systems that are covered by that. So once we have a final standard, essentially systems will have three years to bring systems online that can treat PFAS. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that, what, what's your perspective on how that's going to impact, you know, the, the treatment process rates, things like that, because we, we all know that our utilities are under a lot of stress from, you know, aging infrastructure. How does this kind of interplay with, with, you know, all those other, you know, stresses that utilities are under? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's been something that we've emphasized a lot. Uh, you know, we wrote comments on the reg debt, and we've written comments on other items that the EPA has been doing. And for us, you know, one of our guiding principles is, you know, making sure that we protect public health. So we want to make sure that if we do have a regulatory standard for PFAS, that it's a smart one and that it's the appropriate one to make. Um, Utilities are facing a lot of issues right now. Affordability is a common topic uh, of discussion because we're seeing that water rates are going up faster than other indices uh, for affordability. And we know that there's only a few types of treatment that are available for PFAS at the moment, and they're very selective to the type of PFAS, the level of contamination, as well as what the water quality looks like. So other things that aren't even PFAS can impact PFAS treatment. and you know, the three common ones that we would talk about would be granular activated carbon, anion exchange, and uh, typically membrane filtration, so either reverse osmosis or nanofiltration. But the challenge with that is that each of those comes with really, uh, really tough challenges. So you have waste disposal challenges for GAC and anion exchange, but then you also have, um, you know, if you're using reverse osmosis or nanofiltration, you have a brine stream that gets created in that that process that you might have to manage and all of these things come together to, to add on to the cost of treatment. Um, so one of our, you know, major points of conversation with PFAS is commonly that, you know, if we do get a standard for PFAS, we have to make sure that we've considered what's feasible for utilities to do because they are facing those other issues like aging infrastructure. We have a lead and copper rule that's coming out soon. That's going to be a significant stress on rates as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, you mentioned AWWA's guiding principles in terms of, of adopting regulatory regimes. What, what are some of the other guiding principles that the AWWA has when looking at, at water regulation, water quality regulation? Yeah. Um, so the first one I mentioned was a, a commitment to public health protection. Uh, our second um, would be fidelity to the scientific process. And that kind of gets into what I was talking about earlier is making sure that when we do an analysis for a regulation, We've, we've looked at the science and we follow the science where it leads us. Um, the next one would be an investment in research. So, you know, we can't 
make a regulation if we don't know what we're regulating. So we need to understand the toxicity of a chemical, the occurrence in drinking water, and we need to have a better understanding of how to treat that and what the impacts might be. And then the last one would be the protection of source water. And that also plays off of the point we had about air emissions earlier. You know, protection of source water is the first line of defense for protecting drinking water. If it's not in the source water to begin with, we don't have to remove it from the source water to give it as drinking water. So those are the four that we tend to stick to. Yeah, I really like the last one because, you know, it goes to show an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know. And I think there's a lot to be said in that. So let's not be a pound, you know, pound foolish, penny, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. What about during this, the regulatory determination the EPA made, what about how the AWWA participated in that? Uh, process did the did the AWWA file comments? You know what what was the what was the 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 mechanism? How AWWA participated in that? Uh, yes, yeah, so primarily, um, you know, the way we participated on the reg debts is through comments. So, you know, whenever the EPA does any kind of proposal or finalized regulatory uh, or any anytime they do a proposal for a rule, um, you know, it's an opportunity to comment. So we submitted comments that our members put together for us and we kind of compiled them together and, you know, using those four pillars as a guide, um, you know, our comments to the EPA focused on the overarching message that the agency needs to advance public health with sound standards. Um, you know, and that's specifically we're, we're supportive of the agency walking down the path for a determination, but with an emphasis on the need to do a, that thorough scientific anal- uh, evaluation on everything to make sure that the standards that we get are the most protective standards for public health and they don't um, they don't cause indirect and uh, unintended consequences in other places on public health. Yeah. And was, I, what, what, what does, what do you say to the folks who, who say that, you know, uh, we, we need to regulate it now. It needs to be, needs to have all of it out, you know, just who, who want the, the highest standard of, drinking water quality. I mean, how, how, how do you balance that or how do you counteract the, that, that kind of message and, and why is it good to counter or why, why is that argument to counteract just the 100% out message? Uh, something that, that the, we ought to move towards. Um, well, I mean, we, we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, affordability is a pretty big issue. Um, Drinking water is, is essential to life, and, you know, we need to have clean drinking water, but we also need to have it accessible to everybody. Um, so part of having that scientific analysis uh, that does consider everything and unbalances out cost versus public health protection ensures that when we do get a standard, you know, it, while it may be technically feasible to get all of the PFAS out, which it's not, um, that still comes with the challenge of it's, it's really expensive to get it out. So just having a regulatory standard is going to have a pretty significant stress on water rates. And at the end of the day, that water rate is going to get passed on to the customer, um, you know, the consumer. Yeah. So, you know, we're AWDA's perspective is we're going to follow the science wherever it takes us. And if the science says that we need to get down to a very low level, you know, water utilities are going to rise up to meet that. It just comes with the challenge that they might have to make 
really tough decisions on where to uh, reallocate resources from one project to another. Yeah. Those are going to be tough decisions if, when, if, and when we get there. Um, what's, what's the AWWA's outlook on future, you know, PFAS efforts? Uh, so, you know, I mentioned a couple of times that PFAS is a, a really broad class of chemicals. It's thousands, depending on who you ask, it's a different number, but you know, we do know that there's thousands of PFAS. Uh, I think it's approximately 600 that are still in commercial use. Um, so one of the things that we're eager to see come out is there's a sub substantial amount of research going on for toxicity. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that because that'll actually help guide us on these conversations a little bit further and have a little bit more of a, a firm foundation to start off on. Um, you know, getting the sciences, getting the science right is a really critical challenge to ensuring that when we utilize those resources, like we've mentioned, um, you know, we don't inhibit public health protection elsewhere. You know, everything has a trade-off, and we want to make sure that we have as much science as we can. So we're we're eager for a lot of the the future efforts the agency is making on you know not only toxicity research but ecological impacts um, as well as treatment and occurrence. You know, we have a fifth unregulated contaminant monitoring rule coming out soon, um, or by the time this gets published, it might already be out, and that's going to actually require that uh, drinking water systems that are covered by that rule would have to monitor for 29 different PFAS, um, which is a substantial improvement on what we have currently, which I think is limited to six with mm -hmm. fairly high reporting levels. So, right. you know, we're, we're hopeful that the agency has a couple of things in the queue that are going to be really beneficial to, to determining what public health risk we have from PFAS and where we need to be taken to. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really helpful. I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Chris. Um, is there anything that, that, has come to you as we've been talking that you want to get out there or should I ask you for your kind of leave behind now or what do you, is there anything else that you kind of really want to get out there? Uh, you know, I think, I think we fairly cover the issue as best as you can do in 30 minutes. Um, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really um, challenging, complicated scientific um, issue that we're facing right now. Uh, there's not any easy answers. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a tough conversation to have and it, it leads to some uncomfortable conversations, but it's a good space to be in to have these uncomfortable conversations. Um, the, what I would leave you with is that, you know, as an organization, we represent, our members represent 80% of the nation's drinking water supply. Um, we're, we're working as hard as we can to be a continuing source of technical and educational information on the subjects. Um, not only to support our members, but also our stakeholders. Um, you know, we, we plan to stand by our twin pillars that uphold smart water policy, a commitment to public health protection, as well as a fidelity to the rigorous scientific process. Um, while our, our website currently provides, you know, various types of resources that, you know, anyone can go and check out today, uh, we also are working on preparing, um, we're preparing to publish uh, some guidance materials for utilities that are interested in addressing PFAS as well. So hopefully those will be out soon. Yeah, terrific. Well, Chris, great information. Really appreciate you coming on today. You've been absolutely terrific. Um, for those who want to find out more about you and more about the AWWA and, and PFAS issues, where can they, where, where would you send folks to get that information? Uh, so hopefully we can provide a link to it, but um, sure. it's a fairly, this is a fairly simple link to remember, but it's, it's just awwa.org forward slash P 
PFAS. So it takes you right to our page. We got our briefing right up at the top. There's technical resources like fact sheets, but we also try to incorporate as many of the recent journal articles from journal AWWA regarding PFAS. So in some cases, there are case studies, research on treatment, different things like that. Terrific. Well, we'll put those on the show notes. You can find them, uh, find them on the site. And uh, Chris, again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and having you educate me a little about PFAS. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, terrific interview by Chris. His explanation of the PFAS issue explained why it's such a difficult compound to regulate and how hard it is to get our arms wrapped around that issue. Uh, He also did a great job kind of explaining where we are in the regulatory process for a potential PFAS rulemaking. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can also tweet about the podcast uh, using the hashtag watervalues, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter uh, by accessing the podcast page on the website. Just Google the Water Values podcast, and you should be able to get to the, uh, the, the homepage. Thank you again for tuning in, and a huge thank you again to our sponsors. Uh, again, they're a terrific group of companies and organizations. Those sponsors, again, include Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, and Intera. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.